Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're here with us. Um, we are studying a small, if you're a visitor here, a small and maybe somewhat obscure uh, book of the Bible, uh, the book of Habakkuk, the prophet. And we are continuing our study in chapter one. So we've had two sermons so far. Then we had a little break as I was away last week. And this week we pick up again in the end of chapter one all the way to the beginning of chapter 2. And just to get us up to speed, I'll remind you that Habakkuk is living at a time where things in Judah are not so great. He looks around himself at the nation of or the people of Israel, the Judites particularly. Remember, the nation has been split. The northern kingdom has gone off into captivity, and alone is the southern portion of the kingdom. And in that place, Habakkuk, the prophet, looks around and he sees sin. He sees wickedness. He sees all of God's people doing terrible things. And he cries out for God to answer, to help, to come and bring justice to the situation. And you'll remember God answers Habakkuk in the first chapter and says, yes, I'll bring justice. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to come and carry you away, essentially. I'm going to bring the Babylonians as a form of discipline for you but the babylonians themselves are wicked people right uh the babylonians in fact we'll see uh in our text here are more wicked in many ways than the people of israel the people of judah and that creates another complaint or problem for habakkuk and that why would you choose to use this terrible nation to come and discipline your people Um, and that's where we are we're in this uh moment in this dialogue between habakkuk and uh god concerning the coming prophesied uh, captivity that, that at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, so with that, that little introduction, why don't we go ahead and read God's word. We're going to look at chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Chapter 1, verses 12 uh, to chapter 2, verse 1. This is Habakkuk's second complaint to God. Hear God's word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out of his net. He gathers them in the dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word this morning. We hear Habakkuk's complaint. It brings up all those questions that we have, Lord, of why, Lord, what are you doing? Is this the way, Uh, Lord? And so as we look at your word this morning, help us to see that this 
is your world, that you are ruler and king over it, that you are the sovereign, eternal one who is holy and just, but you're a God full of mercy and grace. Help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. That is the question, right? When you look out at the world and you, you see all the problems that go on or you look in your own life and the mess that is sort of surrounds it oftentimes, and you think to yourself, Lord, what in the world? Why would you choose this as your means of bringing about your goodness for your people, your salvation? Why would you do it this way? I think we've talked about this a bit already uh, in this series, that this is a question that comes up over and over again. Uh, put more formally, it's the question of, uh, if, if you're good, God, why do you do evil things? Or not, why do you do evil things? Why do you allow or permit evil things to happen, right? Why, why do you not only permit evil things to happen, but why is this part of your plan of helping? It seems like it's only hurting, right? That's a question that comes up for many of us often. And it's here again in Habakkuk. You'll remember that the, the Lord had answered Habakkuk. Habakkuk was complaining because the Lord had been silent and evil had come up, as I already mentioned. And the Lord's answer was, I'm going to bring a nation, the Chaldeans. They're a bitter and hasty nation. And they're going to march the breadth of the earth. And they're going to seize dwellings that, they're, that are not their own. They're going to go and ravage and pillage and take it all for themselves. That was the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint. And Habakkuk sees in that answer that this is the Lord's hand of bringing justice and reproof and discipline. We see that in the very first part of the text where it says here, uh, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. And as I was thinking about Habakkuk's second complaint, as he's wrestling with God's, you might say, frowning providence, that providence that seems uh, very harsh in his mind, what struck me most about Habakkuk's second complaint is that he complains, but he grounds it in, in this faith that is established on God. Notice the language that he uses to the Lord. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You see all that language in there? Declaring God as the eternal God, God as his covenant Lord, God as the one who is holy, but God who is his rock. And this morning, as we think about the troubles that we face, I want us to consider what it means to declare that our God is the rock of our salvation. What does that mean? Because even though Habakkuk is complaining, he's making a declaration. So we'll, we'll wrestle with the complaint, significant complaint, but I want us to finally rest in this idea that God is the rock of our salvation. And I'm going to look at it in three parts. First, uh, I want us to consider what it means to stand on the rock, you know, get those prudential ads. You know, you see this young girl up on top of the rock. I guess that's the most recent one. It's a sign of stability and strength and financial success and whatever, but but here, I want us to consider what does it mean for us to stand 
on the rock that is our God. Second, I want us to see that this rock is like no other rock. There is no rock like the Lord. And then finally, I want to encourage you to hide yourself in the rock. In in the language of Exodus, to put yourself in the cleft of the rock. Hide yourself in the rock who is Jesus. So we'll we'll get there. But first, standing on the rock of our living God. Um, As I already mentioned, this is the second complaint. The first complaint was complaint about the wicked within. The second complaint is about the wicked without. The wicked within was the Israelites themselves. The wicked without were these Chaldeans that were coming, and they were going to ravage and pillage and eventually take away the people of God into captivity in Babylon, though that isn't explicitly stated here. We know that from the other prophets and from the history as well. And the complaint takes the form of questioning. This is the approach of the complaint. Uh, it, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit, um, and we'll, we'll look at the specifics of the complaint in points two and three more clearly, but now I just want us to notice that it's a form of a query, right? It's questioning. Uh, rather than uh, uh, at the beginning having these declaration statements that are put into question form, and it reminded me, and I'm, I'm not an attorney or anything like that, but it reminded me of a courtroom where you have this uh, form of affirmation and denial where, the, where the, the, the lawyer says and asks questions, is it true, right? You, you see this, at least in the TV, I don't know, I could, some of you attorneys can help me with it, but you say the question, isn't it true that you were there the night of December 12th, right? Uh, at, the, at the night of the crime that took place. And it is, isn't it true that you were having an argument with the victim that night? You know, that, that's how the, all those classic mysteries courtroom dramas start. And Habakkuk starts with a similar querying, similar questioning for affirmation. But it's different. It's, he's not accusing God. It's not coming at him, accusing him, but rather it's affirming him as God. You notice that? Look where he says. He says, isn't it true? That's kind of the language here. That you are God and that you are my God. Isn't it true, those things, that you are the eternal God from all eternity past to all eternity future, that you are the God who rules and reigns, and isn't it true that you are mine? That's how the querying begins here. And I want to look at these statements that he makes, these queries, but they're statements about God's character, and see how Habakkuk, Habakkuk is using them as his grounds as his foothold, as his strong place to stand. He's saying, God, there is none like you. You alone are eternal. There's none like you. You alone are eternal. You are from everlasting. And what is he saying when he says those words, you are from everlasting? He's saying that there is no other God, that there is no other power There is no other king. There is no one that compares to him. That from beginning to end, there is alpha and omega. There is only one. That's it. So he looks at God and he says, you, aren't you from everlasting? In fact, he will acknowledge that the Chaldeans are ordained. Ordained. God is governing as king of kings and lord of lords, as the everlasting king. He's saying, you are the eternal one who even ordains 
the Chaldeans. Notice this a little later in the verse. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment and have established them for reproof. Lord, you know the beginning from the end. You know all things that come to pass. In fact, uh, he goes on and, and he makes these establishing statements and then he rests his sort of plea in those realities. And I, I want us to stop here and think about this because I wonder if we, generally speaking, think of our theological statements about God as practical. I wonder. I, I don't know that we do. I don't know that we think, oh, God is eternal as something that is very practical. But for the prophet Habakkuk, this is the most significant thing, that you are the king who reigns and rules over all things and that you ordain all things and that you ordain the Chaldeans. This is really practical. That affects how, how I'm going to view what's coming. I don't know. Do we do that? Do we think theologically about who God is and, and wonder, okay, how does that affect the way I look at the world and the events of the world and the events of my life and the things that are going on? Do I see God as the everlasting God, sovereign king over all things? And what does it do for him? What does it do for Habakkuk? To, to state this reality up front. Aren't you the everlasting God? What does it do for him? I think it establishes him. It helps him to trust and to rest in God. And isn't that the case for us? But there's a second thing that he declares. And that is not just his everlasting nature. But he declares the relationship that he has with God. Notice in the next line, it says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Now, there's a few things in this little compact sentence. First is, we notice that he uses the covenantal name, Yahweh, Lord. That's the name that, that was given to Moses, right? When, when Moses was at the burning bush and he said, uh, you know, who are you? He says, I am that I am. I am Yahweh. I am the one who who is the God of my people. You are mine and I am yours. That's the, the relational language in scripture to talk about God as a personal God. So the first thing we note is he calls him Lord, Yahweh, covenant relational God. The second thing we note is that he says, my God. In fact, he uses this twice, this little, um, uh, what do you call it, personal uh, uh, what pro, uh, I'm losing, it's a possessive, right? Possessive, mine. We're getting this right. Uh, possessive pronoun at the beginning, uh, actually in Hebrew, it comes at the end of the word. It's attached to the word. So if you have God, you have my at the very end of the word. Uh, so you have my God. He's declaring that this God who is everlasting, who is Lord and King over all the kingdoms of the world, is his, belongs to him. But there's something else that happens that is even more remarkable. He says, not only my God, but he says, my Holy One. Now, this is remarkable. Why? Well, first of all, there is nowhere else in Scripture where somebody declares that God as holy is theirs. So holiness is this idea of otherness, right? It's the idea of separation. It's the idea of if God is holy, he is not like us in any way. He cannot 
see sin. We see that Habakkuk says that. He cannot dwell with sinners. Even on the mountain, when Moses says, can I see your glory? God says, you can see the backside of my glory, but you cannot see my face because I am a holy God. I am other. I am different. I am distinct from you. And this is the only place in Scripture where somebody declares, my, with the word holy. Unless it's the Lord referring to himself, my holy place, my, holy, my holiness. But when it's somebody talking about God, he's saying, my holy one. Why is this so significant? I think Habakkuk is recognizing God's complete otherness and at the same time, his close relationship with this awesome God who is not like him. The transcendent God above heaven and earth is his. Why is that so significant? I think it's significant to declare this reality, for, for us to recognize that, that we stand before an awesome God who is holy, 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 and yet he's a God who has made himself known and has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus, and that we can have a relationship to, with him and call him our heavenly father. And that means, for Habakkuk, he can complain. He can go to the Lord with his prayer. He can draw near to him. He is faithful. Third thing I notice about this is that he declares his hope and salvation in God. Notice here he says, we shall not die. Some of your translations might have you say, have it, it might say, you shall not die. We had a long discussion in our community group about the distinction what the difference here in different translations. Um, and, and I'm not going to go into that, uh, but it's either referring to that God never dies, his everlasting nature, or it's referring to the fact that because uh, God is his God, God is his covenant God, that God's people shall never die. Um, and I would simply say this, if God is eternal and he's relational, there's hope that we shall never die. So either way, Whatever way you slice it, he's declaring his hope of salvation. Not in Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus yet, but in the hope of that, that salvation that comes uh, through Christ, the Messiah. He knows that salvation belongs to God. But not only does he say, we shall not die, but he goes on and he says, and you, O rock. Of course, this idea of God as a rock goes back in the Old Testament, back to that scene in Exodus that I already brought up, where, where Moses is meeting with God on Sinai, and God places him in the cleft of the rock, rock and passes by him and declares his glorious name to him. Uh, but all through Deuteronomy, God is described as a rock. If you go to the book of Psalms, the psalmist often describes God as a rock. And, and so what is this idea of God being a rock? I think we get it. A little bit, right? It's a metaphor that describes the faithful, protective, powerful refuge that God is for his people. God is our rock, our fortress, our stronghold. It's an image of salvation. Where do you go? Where do you run to? What what place do you do you look for salvation? Jesus will say later on. In the Gospel of Matthew, in this little parable, the man who puts his trust in me 
is like a man who builds his house upon a rock. The man who doesn't is like a man who builds his house upon a sand. God is a refuge and a strength. So as we stand on the rock, we shall never be moved. Habakkuk, this declaration of hope in God, the eternal Holy One who keeps his people safe and secure, is what gives him confidence to go and complain and to question God and to ask him, what in the world are you doing? What? Okay, God, you are eternal, you are holy, you are just, and you are merciful, and you show salvation and grace. What are you doing here in this moment? I can come to you because you are my God, my rock. I have security in you. So, Lord, show me your way. I wonder. The question for us. Do you stand? Do you put your faith and hope and trust in the eternal Holy One who is indeed the judge of heaven and earth, who ordains all things, but is a God who draws near and redeems you? Do you believe and put your trust in that rock for your salvation? As the breakers thunder down in our lives, as life roars and swallows you up, have you been there where you just feel the overwhelming wave of life just passing over you? Do you call God your rock? Do you rest in Or do you look to your own strength? Do you remember what was said about the Chaldeans? One of the, one of the most negative statements, the most negative statement in chapter 1 about that, that Babylonian horde that was coming was this. It said, guilty men whose own might is their God. That's their foundation. What's yours? Do you cry out, my God, my Lord, my rock? Friends, there's only one sure foundation. Put your trust in the God of glory, the one who sent his son, Jesus, for your salvation, put your trust there. Stand on the rock, for it is like no other rock. Second point is, is briefer, no worries. The rock is like no other. In one sense, we've looked at God and how he is not like us, how he's eternal, holy, just, and merciful. Um, and we've seen how he is not, he is like no other. But there's another sense in which we can look at this rock of God and say he is like no other because he baffles us, Right? He doesn't always make sense to us. There are two questions that Habakkuk asks, one in verse 13 and one in verse 17. He says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? That's the first question. And then at the end, he asks, is he then, that is the Babylonian nation, is this nation then to keep on emptying its net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you just going to go on? Are you going to let this evil go on and on, this, this rampaging, evil, wicked nation? Those are the two complaints that Habakkuk had. Now, he had heard the first, the answer to the Lord's, or to the Habakkuk's first complaint. He, he heard it, 
right? I'm sending the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, that wicked and godless nation to chastise my people. And Habakkuk's response is what you might expect. Really? That's your, that's your plan? You're going to send this terrible nation to, to hurt us more? I mean, I know your people sinned, but these are even more wicked people. And Lord, even if you allow them to come and ravage Judah, how long are you going to let it go on? Are you going to let them go across the whole, the whole world just ravaging without, without any justice being done? I love the imagery that, that, that uh, Habakkuk uses, probably because it's fishing, and I love anything fishing. Uh, but he uses the imagery of a fishing boat to describe what the Chaldeans are going and doing. Uh, n- notice here where he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Just, you, you can picture it. These, these you know, fish all running through the sea. And then he says, this nation comes and he brings them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net and gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and he's glad. And he even sacrifices. He gives, uh, he, he gives uh, worship to his dragnet and makes offering to it. He is happy because by bringing in all these fish, all these nations, all these people, he lives in the lap of luxury. Going and pillaging and taking what isn't his own. Occasionally, I'll watch uh, those reality shows where the fellow, uh, where they follow fishermen, you know, like in Alaska or somewhere on the East Coast or something like that. And they, if you ever watch these shows, it's a lot of like bobbing around on a boat. And then all of a sudden they get into the fish and they get excited and they catch lots of fish. And there's all this joy and excitement, legitimate like excitement over the amounts of fish that are coming into the boat. That's the picture here of what Babylon does. He, they come in dragging in their nets full of joy, rejoicing as they pillage the nations. And Habakkuk looks at this and wonders, what are you doing? Over the course of the past few sermons, we've been reminded again and again that God's ways are not our ways. And I want to be really careful here. Sometimes, I think well-intentioned Christians, we do this. We share this idea that God's ways are not our ways, that God is sovereign and that he has all things in his hands and, and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We, we say those words, and they are true, and they are right words. They are God's words. They are important words. And in love and care, we do this, and sometimes we can unintentionally hurt people. I want to be really cautious here because I don't think it's wrong to share God's word with people, especially these words. It's right theology, and it often is the right thing. But the way we say it dismisses the pain of the trial that the person is going I want you to just notice here that Habakkuk complains to the Lord. It's not unrighteous. He goes to the Lord. He acknowledges who God is, but he takes the real pain and sorrow and grief that is attending to the fact that they are going to face such trial. And he brings it to the Lord. I think sometimes we do this. We we just give these sort of comfort words. We think are comforting because... We don't see the pain and hurt of what people are facing. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile God's character 
with God's providence, not because it can't be reconciled, but because we are limited in our understanding. This rock, this sure foundation, this refuge and fortress is like no other, and sometimes it baffles us. So what do we do when when we're hurting or somebody we know is hurting? Well, I think we do what Habakkuk does. We pray. Not only do we, we lift up our prayers to the Lord ourselves for our own concerns, but we take those concerns of that other person and say, friend, I know what you're going through is hard. I don't understand it. It looks painful. I'm, I, I, I feel for you. Can I take your concerns? Can I lift them up to the Lord? Can encourage folks to cry out to the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. It is, there is a time and a place to say, don't forget, God is at work. God is working these things together for good. But don't, don't skip the step of wrestling with the Lord and wrestling with somebody as they wrestle with you. Come alongside in their pain. I know that's really basic. But I'm wondering if, you know, it's, it's like, what do you do when things are bad? Well, go to the Lord in prayer. But I think our first reaction often isn't that. Either. What is our first reaction when things don't go well? Well, first, maybe we get angry. Then we either try to take control of the situation ourselves or we fall into despair of the situation. I don't know where you fall on those spectrums. Maybe you do all three of those things. You get angry, you try to grasp control, it all falls apart, and you despair. But some of us maybe are more prone to, like, I'm going to fix. Some of us are more prone to, woe is me. I think Habakkuk gives us a picture of what it looks. Take these things to the one who is sovereign and eternal and holy and loving and merciful and just, and bring them to him. Complain to him. Wrestle with him. Back it goes to the Lord with a mind full as full of what he does know of God. He brings his petition and complaints there. God is the rock. He is not like us. He isn't like any other foundation or stronghold in this world. But he is sure. He is sure because he is far stronger, far greater, far more holy, far more loving far more merciful than we could ever dream or imagine because of that, friends, this is my final point in conclusion, hide yourself in this rock. At the heart of Habakkuk's concern is this idea that God would use a grossly and far more wicked nation to punish Judah. Notice what he says here in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This is the same This is the same thing he brought up in chapter 1 earlier when he was saying, you can't look at what all these Israelites are doing as bad. Now he's saying, but you also can't look at what the Chaldeans are doing. You can't look on these things. Why do you idly look at these traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I would say on the face of it, his complaint is valid. 
The Chaldeans, in God's own words, are a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, and they are guilty men whose own might is their God. That's the description of the Chaldeans, God's own description of them. They are the definition of wickedness. Later in Revelation, they will be used as the archetype of the rebellious kingdoms of the world, Babylon. They're as bad as it gets. Habakkuk's looking at the wickedness surrounding him and his people and thinking, what you're about to do is so much worse. Now, here's the thing. I think we all define justice differently. And I I mean by that, not just here at CCPC. I think probably, maybe hopefully we all have a general sense of, okay, God's word directs us in what is just and right and good. But I would say, generally speaking, we live in a nation and a world that is crying out for justice. From every corner of the world, there's a cry for justice. And oftentimes that justice looks very different depending on what side of uh, the situation you're on, right? Everyone is crying out for justice. We all define it a bit differently. We all have a sense of it. And this is the argument actually that Paul makes in his letter to the Romans. He says, everyone judges. But then he goes on and he says, sadly, in our fallen condition, We're like the Chaldeans. We have justice and dignity going forth from ourselves. And even that justice and dignity that goes forth from ourselves, our defined justice, we don't even keep it, Paul says. We don't even do the things that we think are right and good and just. Never mind, are they truly right and good and just. And the problem, the fundamental problem we have is that we are subjective judges. What do I mean by that? We are subjective judges. What happens is we look at the world and we say, man, I am so glad that I am not like those people over there. Can you believe what they do? We're blind to our own fallen condition, our own sin. Not only that, but we'll look at folks and we'll say, man, I cannot believe you do that. Well, at the same time, we make excuse for our own slothfulness. We make excuse for the ways we lie, for our anger, for our covetousness, for our sexual immorality, for our disrespecting of authority, not to mention all our failings to actually love God and obey God. We just, we look at the world and we say, man, look how terrible they are. But, you know, there's reasons that I do the things that I do, right? We call that justifying rather than justice. We justify ourselves. Look at the world and judge me. We look at our neighbors and say, how could they? Like the Pharisee who prayed, I'm thankful, not like that sin. We see, we fail to see the real measure of our sin. Habakkuk looked at the relative wickedness of the Judites and the relative wickedness of the Chaldeans. And he rightly judged that the Chaldeans are worse. They were worse. They were the full flower, you will, of wickedness. But what he didn't do, what he failed to do, is he failed to look at his people's sin in light of this holy God. What did their sin deserve? We read it earlier. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, 
Habakkuk didn't have the right measuring. You know, I, I, I uh, uh, occasionally my dad and I will go into our shed and we'll build stuff. Mostly he will build stuff and I will just watch. Um, and, I, and I can tell you that you are always getting new measuring tools and other tools. You never have the right one. No, we need this one that has these particular meters and measurements. And this is not long enough. This is too short. Whatever it is, we're always getting new tools and hanging them on the wall and then finding out we need another one. You never have the right one. Bacchus was not measuring the Chaldeans to God and himself to God and to the Judeans to God. He was measuring the Israelites to the Chaldeans. But in the grand picture of things, there was this grand gulf between God and himself. As a righteous prophet of God, the, the gulf was so great that, that whatever judgment came, But here's the wonder of God. Remember, he was asked, God was asked, will you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This was God's answer. We haven't actually looked at the answer, but this, this is the fundamental answer that God gives. Yes. Yes. Will you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he was. He says, yes. Yes, because the man more righteous is not the sinners in Judah who break covenant. They are wicked and, and deserve punishment themselves. The man more righteous is not Habakkuk. He's just a man, a sinner. The man more righteous was not anyone in that realm or world, but it was in his son who was to come, who like a sheep before his shearers, was silent, who cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God was silent. And traitors betrayed Jesus on the cross. Why? To save his people. When God told Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by you, that rock, the New Testament tells us this, that rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was the man more righteous who was swallowed up by death, who created a refuge for us as his people to be redeemed. And this is the good news of the gospel, friends. We are not worthy, but God is the just and the justifier who gave up his son to be a propitiation. We read that big word earlier from, from the book of Romans. That just means to bear the full wrath and curse of God for our sin. When we look here in Habakkuk's complaint, he doesn't see all of this, but he rests on that rock. He cries out to that rock. He complains to that rock. And he trusts and rests in that rock because he knows that his salvation is from the Lord. And this is what he does. He says, I will stand at my walk post. I'll station myself at the tower. I'll look out and I'll wait. And sometimes in our deepest trials, it's all we can do. But we can look to the God of our salvation. 
the rock of Jesus, of Christ.